and Tyler Hecklin as well is a great is a great alpha. He's uh, you know he came on board. He's a producer on this on the movie. You'd think someone this experienced at murder would be better at murder. I can't wait to see what this is. That person's really upset, and they're coming right for me. No one in Beacon Hills understands reverse psychology. I keep on calling them kids. They're not kids anymore. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf Rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by... Will Wallace. And Calissa Mullis. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about Season 3, Episode 7, Currents. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. This episode is titled Currents. It was written by Jeff Davis and directed by Russell Mulcahy. In this episode, the Drock takes two more sacrifices, both healers. Danny isn't one of the sacrifices, but he's poisoned by mistletoe, and it might be related to the Drock's plan. Deaton calls Scott when he realizes he's about to be kidnapped. Allison shows Scott a map her father created tracking all the major locations relating to the Drock, which might help them find Deaton before time runs out. Cora warns Lydia against dating Aiden. Styles tries to guide Lydia towards using her mysterious powers to help with the search for Deaton. Meanwhile, Derek, Boyd, and Isaac face off against the Alphas with tragic consequences. All right, so our favorite quote of the week is actually an exchange between Danny, National Treasure, and Styles. Danny says while he's laying in the hospital room after being poisoned, he he spots Styles rummaging through his stuff and he says, "What are you doing?" To which Styles responds, "I'm not doing anything, Danny. This is just a dream you're having." Danny asks, "Why are you going through my stuff?" Styles replies again, "Right, but only in the dream, remember? Dream. Dreaming." Danny's not really buying it and he says, why would I dream about you going through my stuff? And Styles Ert responds, I don't know, Danny. Okay, it's your dream. Take responsibility for it. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic moment in the episode when Styles is going through Danny's bag and constantly like doing these little peek ups over the bed to see if Danny's asleep or watching. It's great. I love that bit. Actually, in the script, though, it just says, yeah, so my favorite line is actually absent. And he just says, Danny, shut up and go back to sleep. The whole like take responsibility <laughs> isn't in that script. Nice. Yet. It would have been a real bummer without that. And we have an honorable mention that takes place between Cora and Lydia. Cora says, you don't have very good taste in guys, do you? To which Lydia replies, sweetheart, my last boyfriend was a homicidal lizard, so I think I can handle a werewolf. Typical Lydia snark. And maybe it was this exchange that launched a thousand ships. Or one ship, I guess, because it's just <laughs> Cora and Lydia. But I very much believe in this ship wholeheartedly. I like it a lot. 
The episode opens with Scott bringing food to a frazzled Melissa. Finally, some Melissa McCall that's not just dream hallucinations. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I think we're going to get you a shirt, Will, that just says, finally, dot, 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 Melissa McCall. (laughs) I would wear the shit out of that shirt. If it had like a face on it, ah. It's like promises. It's like her version of the suddenly Derek, finally, Melissa. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Unable to find the ER attending, Melissa has to juggle several injured patients as they wait for another doctor to arrive. To help an accident victim, Scott takes her pain. Good for you, Scott. This is what we like to see. Yeah, I wish I could have held Scott's hand that one time I had a kidney stone. I literally wanted to die. It was Aww. just awful. It sounds terrible. It's I ho- I would not wish it on my worst enemy. Well, it's not really your worst enemy, is it, then? Well, I mean, I don't know. Hitler, maybe, or something. But... <laughs> so you're saying your worst enemy is Hitler? Hitler is everyone's worst enemy. What are you talking about? He's the nemesis of mankind. He is. Was. that bitch. (laughs) (laughs) What a fresh, unique take, Will. (laughs) I know. I know. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say we don't need any fresh takes on Hitler. We good. (laughs) Fucking trends over here like normal. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's go. Ethan bursts through the hospital doors, holding up a sick Danny. What? Not Danny. Not National Treasure Danny. Again, say his full name. (laughs) God just, like, pushes the woman out of the way to get to Danny. (laughs) Get out of the way. It's Danny. (laughs) She's like, oh, I understand. (laughs) Throws herself to the ground. (laughs) Yeah, run to him. Go to him. He needs you, Scott McCall. (laughs) Turns out the on-call doctor is stuck in traffic behind the accident, trying to get to the hospital. Oh, Yes. The traffic of Beacon Hills. Tell her that Danny's in here. Yeah, get there faster, lady. You know who I mean. Danny Mahialani, the Danny. Instead of her saying, I'm going as fast as I can, in the script, it says she tries to cut into another lane and gets a loud horn beep for her efforts. She says, oh, come on, I'm a doctor. (laughs) Back at the hospital, Danny has chest pains and struggles to breathe. He throws up and Ethan and Scott see mistletoe in the vomit. Never want to see unrecognizable things in your vomit there. In the script, Ethan and Scott actually argue a bit more, and Melissa has to put them in their place. Ethan's like, what is it? Is he dying? And Scott tells him to shut up. Ethan says, I didn't do anything. And Melissa says, the two of you, back off. Her voice sends them both retreating a step. And yeah, I just, I like that. She has to kind of just been like, shut up. You guys don't matter. Let's focus on Danny. You're not helping. Yeah, you're not helping. No, she she's very good at putting her foot down in dramatic situations, especially with like other supernatural creatures and stuff like that. And they always comply. You mm-hmm. always comply to Melissa McCall. Still trying to get to the hospital, Dr. Hilliard has a strange moth land on her windshield. She uses her windshield wiper to knock it away, but doesn't notice another crawling through her car vent. Oh no, the Mothman is coming. <laughs> this <Ooh>. was prophesized. <laughs> Danny is wheeled back on a gurney. Melissa tries to get Scott and Ethan to stay in the waiting room, but they don't listen. No, it's Danny. Of course they don't listen. They gotta be at his side. One, each of them holding his hand. So they don't always comply, I guess. I guess. There are no doctors around, so Melissa has to jump into action to save Danny. So in the script, it plays out like this. Scott says, how do we help? Melissa says, you can't. His lungs collapsed. Scott says, that sounds bad. Really bad. Melissa says, and his heart is being pushed against his chest cavity. Ethan says, that sounds worse. Much worse. I can see why they changed this. It reads kind of comical to me. Yeah. Also in the script, Melissa says, works for me, after Ethan rips off Danny's shirt. So that, I think I would have been fine with them keeping. I, I would have been fine with that as well. 
Yes. That's cute. Dr. Hillard is attacked by a swarm of the strange moths that have found their way into her car. I'm rewatching season one of Fringe, and there is an episode also with killer butterflies. Yeah, the dreamscape. Wolfies, if you tried watching Fringe and gave up partway into the first season because it just felt like X-Files light, trust us and go back to it. Fringe gets great. It just needed that first year to figure out its style. Trust me, I almost gave up on it too. But thank God for bone bias, am I right? I feel seen. Dr. Hilliard looks into the rearview mirror and sees the horrifying face of the Duroc. Did she check the back seat? Ah, oh, the Duroc's face is so great. I love it. Meanwhile, Melissa gives Danny a needle thoracostomy. Oh my God, that needle is so big. She's just like, ah, oh, I'm so good at my job. She is. She's so good at everything. I love you, Melissa McCall. Danny thanks Melissa for saving his life. Scott says, it was awesome. Melissa stays modest. It's great. Don't downplay it. You're amazing. Yeah, you're so cool. As they head outside, Ethan tries to convince Scott that the Alphas won't hurt Danny. All right, Wolfies, that hospital entrance you're seeing right there, that's actually the parking lot for our offices. And when you go through those doors right behind our uh, Scott and Ethan, you just walk right into our offices. It was fantastic. I remember seeing Jeff's parking space in that lot. Yeah, it's a little bit further down. Uh, about where that minivan is down there, that door right there on the left-hand side of the screen goes right into the writer's room. Nice. That's cool. So you're saying none of this is a real hospital? Oh, no, it's all TV no, magic. So many people died in... <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That was the problem. Ethan says the Alphas now know that Lydia is the important one. Wait, what made the Alphas think that Lydia was important to them, but not Danny? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know the gang got upset that Aiden was showing an interest in Lydia, but I'm sure Ethan also heard them talking about how they didn't want him to be around Danny on the bus in Motel California. He has super hearing. The conversation ends when a car drives erratically through the parking lot. Scott rushes to help after the car crashes, but Dr. Hilliard's car is now empty, save for a single dead moth. Stiles tries to explain to a confused sheriff that it's not just one, but two kidnappings of doctors at the hospital. Now Scott knows to call Stiles as soon as something's up. Yes, he does. There's an extra moment here in the script that we don't actually see on screen, and I think it's interesting. It says, Pin paused over his notebook. Zelensky peers up to the scene of the accident. The witnesses gathered, the crashed car. He sees his son talking to Scott. All he hears is his own breathing. Stiles says, Dad, and Zelensky, snapping out of it, says, Sorry, Melissa, let me just focus on getting your story. I don't know. I thought that was kind of weird that there's like this own little moment he has there. Yeah. In his own head. I, I feel like maybe the intention of that was to illustrate how overwhelmed Stalinsky is, because that becomes the center of that conversation later between Scott and Stiles about whether it would benefit him to know what's going on. And I can see why they cut it because there isn't explicit information being delivered on screen. And with Teen Wolf episodes, pretty much there needs to be explicit information in every single scene because they were that strapped for time. But I'm guessing that's what that was about, is we were supposed to see first person that he is feeling increasingly overwhelmed and has some kind of intuition that there's something at play here that doesn't fully fall into his wheelhouse. Like he, it's monsters and magic and things that he was never trained for, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, but it would have been really nice to have. I, I think, you know, and I get what you're saying about it being cut and why, but it would have been interesting to, to see that. But yeah, yeah, I'd like to have that moment. Scott and Styles talk about how the Duroc has moved on to a new set of sacrifices, healers. Stolinski gets a call that another body has been found, the ER attending doctor. However, the MO has been changed. Argent and Decalion both watch from the crowd gathered at the crime scene. At the loft, Derek startles awake when a security alarm goes off. Oh, my bread's burning! He fell asleep reading, you guys. I love that. 
if you squint, you can see the title of that book, and it's How to Werewolf Good. Oh, Styles wrote it for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. I love that. Derek wakes to find the symbol of the Alpha Pack and warns Cora that they are coming for them tonight. Where do you guys think Cora was when Derek and Jennifer were together? Uh, she was upstairs listening to music really loud on her headphones. <laughs> she was with Peter, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. They were investigating stuff. Yeah, but that was during the day. Derek and Jennifer got back to the loft that night and seemed to be there for an extended period of lovemaking. That's Aww. accurate. Sex magic does take a long time. Still out looking for his body, I guess. I mean, they're not exactly going to be like, well, guess we'll just try again tomorrow. I mean, it probably feels like a pretty pressing issue. Excuse me, have you met Peter Hale? Fine, to Cora. <laughs> yes. Cora, we, we have established that Cora doesn't like to wait for She's things. She's not a waiter. She True. is not. Melissa wakes to find Isaac and Scott asleep in her room. I love this bit. It's so cute. Yeah, Isaac's going to get drool on that scarf, though. <laughs> Scott and Isaac explain that they wanted to keep watch to protect Melissa because she's a healer. But Isaac fell asleep during his turn to keep watch. Oh, uh, Isaac is so cute in his new comfy home. He is. Melissa says that she's not going to be anyone's sacrifice today and they have to go to school. You seem to heal a lot more people in Beacon Hills than anyone else. You might not be safe. Yeah. Solid point. She can't make that promise. <laughs> Jennifer fills in for Mr. Harris, who is still missing. Sick. She meant sick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, I do like that bit where she's like, yeah, your teacher's missing. I meant sick. I definitely meant sick. The script she actually says, I mean sick, or essentially unable to attend class. <laughs> <laughs> He's still missing. I mean, I mean, missing you. He misses you, his students. And everyone's like, no, no. She's an English teacher, so she has a degree in mincing words. <laughs> also in the script, it says, while still her typically nervous self, there's something different about her. More attractive clothes, more attention to her hair, the look of someone newly concerned with looking her best. Now, I noticed I felt like she was more confident in the scene, but I didn't really notice anything different about her clothes or anything else. Did you guys notice the shift? I did not at all. Um, <laughs> I, I still, you, I still was getting Kathleen Turner. Like that was yeah. still the vibe to me. Maybe if she'd come in wearing like a red polo shirt, like Ron Swanson after he has sex, we could have noticed <laughs> some kind of difference. Styles worries about who could be the next sacrifice, pointing out that there are at least 20 doctors at the hospital. And that's just at the hospital. I have to assume there's other like medical offices in Beacon Hills. Well, we know there's a veterinarian. Deaton calls Scott and says that Scott is his only hope. Oh, now he wants to be the Princess Leia of this story. He's so f***ing unhelpful. Yep. Deaton says he's going to be taken and Scott will have to find him. This is such bullshit. Why doesn't he tell Scott about what Deucalion did? I mean, I know that he has like a finite amount of time and everything, but it feels like Deucalion killed Ennis would be valuable three words to include in that conversation instead of whatever like cryptic, stuff he tucked in there you're the worst agreed or he could have said it the day before we don't know how much yeah, time is yeah passed. yeah anytime middle of the night honestly wake scott up in in the middle of that failed protection scheme that he had going on with isaac like <laughs> communicate yeah damn this is all really all you even need to send yeah yeah a text just like a line of emojis for scott to interpret <laughs> <laughs> This is like a reverse Liam Neeson call, though. I'm about to be taken. You have to find me. You have a special set of skills. 
It totally is. That might actually be what Taken 2 or 3 is about. I think one of them, the daughter has to go save him. Yeah. It could be. I have not seen them. Me either, so. Isaac and Boyd go to Derek's loft. There's actually an extra scene here that opens up Act 2 in the script. It says, The physics classroom door bursts open into a crowded corridor. Scott hurls out with Styles trying to catch up. Allison turns from her locker, nosing them. Styles, what's going on? She asks. Styles says, It's Scott's boss, Deaton. She watches them race off as a bewildered Jennifer steps out. Jennifer says, I have to admit, the number of students recently bolting out of my class is starting to make me question my teaching ability. Allison gives a polite smile and shuts her locker door. Okay. I mean, I do think that would have been kind of funny just because there are so many students that just like get up and run out of class. It is time <laughs> yeah. to start hanging lanterns on yeah. stuff and or at least have teachers calling it out. So yeah. Derek tries to get Isaac and Boyd to go back to school, but Isaac says they called in sick because they want to help Derek protect himself from the alpha pack who are coming for him. In the script, after Isaac says that Boyd has explosive diarrhea, it says, sitting on the steps of the spiral staircase, Derek tries hard not to smile, but loses the battle. He steps down to meet them. So, smiley Derek, he thinks it's funny. I do remember, I mean, he does smile in the scene. Just like on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, poop is funny, guys. So, poop is funny. I do think it's like a little bit of a grim smile, mm -hmm. given you know, the circumstances, but it counts. <laughs> on a Derek scale, it's probably like a solid five. Boyd came up with a plan based on the time he and Erica were kidnapped and electrocuted by the Archons. He wants to try that on a bigger scale. Such a great character. I sure hope nothing happens to him. Me too. Oh boy. <laughs> Scott goes to the animal clinic where he meets Sheriff Stalinsky. He asks how Stalinsky knew. <laughs> Sheriff's like, Deaton also called us and left a very cryptic message. Stalinsky says Styles called him. Dean's car is still at the clinic and the back door is open. Stalinsky asks Scott to tell him everything. Well, I don't know if you're ready for that, actually. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> Boyd floods Derek's loft, explaining that if they disable the circuit interrupter in the building's electrical room, anyone who steps in the water will be in for a shocking surprise, especially someone who's barefoot. Like a certain asshole. Also, the scene ends with, in the script, Derek peers up at them with the beginnings of a smile after he listens to the plan and that we don't see mm. i don't feel Agreed. like yeah but i feel like at this point given that the script has now twice specified a smile from derek we could basically classify derek smiling as like the grim like some something bad is going to happen because yes. derek is not allowed to be amused or happy for more than like five minutes i like that harry potter reference oh, that's Thank good. You. i was about to be like yes if you're peering into your tea leaves and see a derek smiling back at you run just run as fast as you can. <laughs> Back at the clinic, Scott tries to convince Stiles to tell the sheriff everything. I like the working dog poster in the back. I was just looking at that, yeah. Can they both be wearing flannel at the same time? Is that chill? I like Stiles' shirt a little bit more, though. Yeah, it's a better color. Isn't that what Barbara told us? That, like, at one point, she had them both in flannel, and they were like, they can't both be wearing it. No one will be able to tell them apart. That's yeah. literally the only thing about them that's uh, distinguishing. So. Yeah, just ask Veronica Mars. Maybe Scott borrowed this flannel from Styles, or Styles left at his house, and he just decided to keep it. I like that. In the script, Stalinsky tells them to go back to school, but then he changes his mind, just says, oh, hell, go home if you need to. School can wait. <laughs> yeah. I would have liked that. I think that's fair. Styles reminds Scott of how hard it was when Melissa first found out. Scott says that she got over it, and it even brought them closer. Also, you're not a werewolf, Styles. Yeah, you're just basically saying, look at all this weird, crazy stuff that's happening. Not to me, but 
to other people. So. It's adjacent. <laughs> it, is, it is Styles adjacent weirdness. Yeah. Styles says that his father is already completely overwhelmed. Scott points out that he's overwhelmed because he doesn't have all the information. He has no idea what's happening and people are dying in this town. I think Scott has a point here. Yeah, I'm citing a Scott. I don't feel like they have a very good reason for why Styles isn't telling him, but I don't really understand his argument about how it's putting him in more danger. Yeah. Because, I mean, Styles has been put in more danger, but that's because he's Styles. That's very true. He does have a tendency to run towards it. Sometimes without a weapon. But the only time he's been targeted just by kind of like being related to the situation was when he was taken by Gerard. And that wasn't because of what he knew. It was because of who he was to Scott. The fact that Scott cared about him. Those are two different things. Yeah, it'd be weird to kidnap the sheriff to send a message to Scott. He's removed enough that he'd be a weird choice for that. Yeah, and I mean, he's going to be important to Scott whether he knows about what's going on or not. So if it's about relevance to Scott, him having more information isn't going to change that. Plus, if Stalinsky knows more about what's happening, he might be able to protect himself better. Yeah, he could like totally stock up on like mountain ash and yeah, just throw mistletoe in people's faces. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a mistletoe. (laughs) Styles realizes that Scott is right and resolves to tell his dad the truth. But before he can do that, Ms. Merle takes them aside and talks to them about how to find her brother. Oh, that's right. They do confirm that they're actually siblings. I could not remember when we were watching an earlier episode. She's so mysterious, just like her brother, I guess, that mm-hmm. runs in the family. Yeah. I guess so. Morel says they should talk to someone who has the ability to seek out the supernatural, Lydia. I think it's a little strange that they completely, like, just abandon the idea to tell the sheriff just because Ms. Morel is like, you should go talk to Lydia. They were like, squirrel! i could see styles using that as an excuse where he's like oh well here's something else we could try first yeah no you're right they kind of give up on that real fast meanwhile lydia is at school making out with aiden when they're interrupted by a fire alarm aiden tries to convince her to stay yeah i'm sure he would actually be able to smell the smoke if there was a real fire i wouldn't trust him that much if i were her touche lydia tells aiden to leave first before she can leave too cora comes in saying that lydia doesn't have very good taste in guys you think Derek told her about Jackson then? Probably. Have you tried girls? I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> Melissa tells Stalinsky she's pretty sure she knows how Dr. Hillard and the other healer died. And she's pretty sure she thinks that information will help find Deaton. Cora tells Lydia that Derek would like to ask her to stop seeing Aiden. Cora adds that if Lydia doesn't do so, she'll pull Lydia's tongue out of her head. Far from intimidated, Lydia says that her last boyfriend was a homicidal lizard, so she can handle a werewolf. Thanks, though. Yeah, because that went super well for you. Yeah, none of that worked out in literally anyone's favor. I mean, it kind of worked out in Jackson's favor because her love helped him become a werewolf, but it was a very painful situation for her. Also, again, why doesn't anyone communicate? I feel like it would be helpful if Scott was just like, Hey, Lydia, Ethan straight up admitted that they were each targeting one person to try to get to us. Ethan was targeting Danny. Aiden was targeting Lydia. Ethan admitted that shit. But Scott hasn't told anyone about that conversation as far as we know. And he certainly hasn't told Lydia. Yes, it's very frustrating. Also, I feel like I was just thinking when Calissa was reading that description about the interaction with Cora and Lydia that clearly there's just something that I like about one character trying to intimidate another character and the other character being like, that, I'm not intimidated. Because that's basically Derek and Styles' relationship. It's also basically Cora and Lydia's relationship, and I ship both of them until the end of time. Yes, good ships. Good, sturdy ships. You gotta type. <laughs> Styles comes in and stops Cora from threatening Lydia further. 
he asks Lydia to try using a spirit board. I like how Cora tags along for this. I feel like she'd just say, Derek tells me you guys are dumbasses. I'd really like to witness it for myself. <laughs> Probably. It's too bad that Shelly Hennig wasn't on the show yet because she has experience with spirit boards. That's true. Yes, she does. Didn't end well for her, though. <laughs> no, it didn't work out well Spoilers for Spoilers for that movie. <laughs> Lydia thinks the idea is stupid. But Styles tells her to remember that this is for Scott's boss, who saved their asses more than once. Name one. It, it was between seasons. You know, we, we didn't see that. Mm-hmm. Styles asks Lydia where Deaton is. She says she doesn't know, and she thought they were supposed to be asking some sort of spirit. Cora asks if she knows any spirits. Lydia asks Styles if Cora is for real. Okay, this wasn't her idea. I, if you're going along with a spirit board being a viable option, why draw the line at asking a specific spirit? In the script, the scene is actually extended. Lydia says to Styles, is she for real? You know this whole thing is just a product of an idiomotor response. Cora replies, the what? Lydia says, your body can reflexively respond to an idea the same way your knee responds to the tap of a hammer. So yes, I could subconsciously answer the question, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be right. Cora then says to Styles, is she always like this? And Styles replies, unfortunately. I like that they both, in that short span, ask Styles to clarify something about the other one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, great. The, the passive aggression of it. It's great. It's really funny. I, I, I would like that in there. I like yeah. whenever Lydia is just being sassy with her knowledge. Yes. Yeah. She brings the knowledge and the sass. She seems to know a lot, in particular this season, about psychological phenomena. Mm -hmm. She talks about, like, basically a lot of mind over matter type stuff, you know, placebo effect adjacent concepts. I wonder why Very she did a deep dive into psychology. <laughs> what? She thought she was going crazy in season two. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I forgot. It about was that. a good joke. Will. It was very good. Was, I'm just stupid. Joke. So, <laughs> uh, future will leave all this in so everybody knows how stupid you are. <laughs> Kayleen finds Scott in the school and asks if he knows what a metronome is. Oh, God. He doesn't even give him a chance to answer. I want to hear Scott be like, it helps you with the weather, right? <laughs> Kayleen says, a metronome helps set a tempo. The tempo of Scott's life has sped up a lot, and Dukalian can help slow it down by helping him find Deaton. I feel like that's that's how he talks is just very condescending. I was gonna say I, I like the uh, <laughs> I like the intonation you put into yeah. the, to the words. It's very good, very very good way to channel Kitty and Emery. Meanwhile, Styles moves on from spirit board to psychometry, the ability to discover information by touching an object. He gives Lydia Deaton's keys. When she touches them, Lydia gasps. Styles gets excited until Lydia explains the keys are just very cold. His eyes here. Oh my god. Uh, that's great. He's, He's about to have an aneurysm. <laughs> he's like an actual cartoon character come to life yes <laughs> Decalion continues saying that he's pretty sure he knows what Scott is thinking I was thinking go f*** yourself and stop monologuing Decalion says that if Scott can take away his cane he'll tell Scott where Deaton is no stop trying to be Mr. Miyagi you're not Mr. Miyagi then they fight Scott has learned so well from Derek with that unnecessary backflip yes he has Decalion reminds Scott that he's not the one sacrificing people praying to ancient gods or whatever druids do i only pray to myself i am the demon wolf the demon wolf <laughs> the alpha pack wants Derek dead to Kalian explains kali is going after him so scott has to make a choice someone will die tonight either Derek or deaton scott's like uh take Derek. i don't like him anyway do you think that 
Blade and Deucalion's cane was laced with something because it seems like Scott gives up the fight so easily after he's stabbed. Yeah, it does seem like that. I had that same thought. Yeah, and it's just in the shoulder. It's not like, you know, something super important. It is a flesh wound. Oh, you got blood on Styles' shirt. <laughs> Next, Styles moves on to automatic writing. He neglects to tell Lydia that she should be writing words, not drawing images. So he's disappointed when she automatically starts drawing a tree. The same one she found herself drawing in music class. Frustrated, Lydia says they should be talking to Danny instead. Finished with the fight, Scott comes in and explains what she means. Danny was a target last night, but not a sacrifice. That must mean something. At the morgue, Melissa shows Stalinsky the second body. The ligature marks around the wrists, in addition to the lack of ligature marks on the neck, probably mean the person was suspended. They were asphyxiated because when you're hanging by your wrists, you have to lift yourself up to breathe. When you run out of strength, you can't breathe. Wait, so you're telling me all the films I've seen where people are suspended by the arms are wrong because they just die? Yes. I totally didn't know this either. While Styles heads to the hospital to talk to Danny, Scott gets a text from Allison and goes to the Argent's apartment. Allison wants to show Scott something of her dad's that she found, but when her dad comes home early, they hide in the closet. Why are you both hiding? Yeah, you don't both have to go in there. Allison, you actually live there. Maybe she's supposed to be at school? I don't know what time it is and no one's ever in class. Yeah, but then he comes back like in a second, like in a, in a subsequent moment here, and she just sits on her bed and is doing homework. So I feel like she rushed into the closet and then was like, wait, why did I do this? <laughs> yes, probably. I do really like the Tycho drum stuff that Dino's got going on with the score though. How did Cora know that Danny was still in the hospital? How does she even know who Danny is? Do you think it turned into like a whole Ferris Bueller situation at this school? Yes, no, absolutely. Anytime someone comes to visit in Beacon Hills, they're handed brochures about local events and sites to see. And also here is a dossier on Danny, the greatest person who's ever lived. Back at the loft, Boyd finishes setting up their trap. In the script, the scene is extended. It says, with Derek and Isaac perched above the now water-drenched floor, Boyd finishes tying off a wire. Kneeling from his own position on the elevated steps, he slowly reaches out. And Derek says, whoa, what are you doing? Boyd says, you can test to see if water is electrified with the back of your hand. If there's a current, it'll kick your hand up. Do it the front, the muscles clinch, and your hand goes under. He turns his hand and touches it to the surface of the water. Sparks and blue light fly up as Boyd's hand snaps back. Boyd says, still hurts though. Oh, Boyd. Bringing the smarts. So much knowledge. I'm very sad that got cut. Yeah, I, I like that too. That's very lot. interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah. So back at the Argent apartment, Scott has an involuntary reaction to being in such close quarters with Allison. So she turns around to face away from him. That's better? Question mark? They were team missionary. But actually, Scott says that's much worse. Wait, they were in the bedroom and Chris was in his office. They could have just stood still and done nothing. Yeah, but then we wouldn't have had this moment. Yeah, I'm happy that they had time for the sex jokes and everything. But there were other things that had to get cut from this episode that I kind of would have preferred. Yes. Oh my God, my dad's here. Freeze! He only sees you if you move. You just stand there. <laughs> <laughs> in the bedroom <laughs> he comes in he's like guys i am not a tyrannosaurus rex <laughs> when chris leaves allison shows scott something her father has been working on a map of beacon hills that under blacklight tracks all the locations relevant to the alpha pack and the sacrifices chris seems to have found some kind of pattern because there have been six sacrifices yet there are 12 such markings on the map if deaton is being held as a sacrifice 
then one of the six unaccounted for sacrifice locations is probably where his body will be found. That could get them close to where he's currently being held, so Scott can rescue him before he's sacrificed. They take a picture of the map. But would taking a picture of the map work? The markings aren't visible unless they're under a black light, right? Right, I was thinking that same thing. Chris returns. Allison hides Scott and goes into her room pretending to do homework. Looking good, Chris. It's like, hey, you weren't here two seconds ago enjoying those Twizzlers. While Allison distracts Chris with conversation, Scott sneaks out. Do you think Scott brought back one of those killer moths for Allison's display there? I didn't even notice that display. Oh, I didn't either. And then Lydia has butterflies over her bed. Girls like butterflies. And moths, maybe? Girls like lepidopterans? You're so Lydia. <laughs> Styles sneaks into Danny's hospital room and slaps his face to see if he'll wake up. Stop hitting him, Styles. Eh, he's used to Derek coming out of it like that. Yeah. Styles goes through Danny's things. When Danny rouses, Styles tries to convince him that he's dreaming. Dylan O'Brien does so much with so little in this scene. I love it. It's great. It is. While searching through his stuff, Styles finds a paper Danny wrote for Mr. Harris's class about telluric currents. This could help explain why he was poisoned. Okay, so someone took the time to like poison him because of the knowledge, but didn't take the paper back? They were very confident that anyone would just read that title page and be like, nerd, and throw it away. <laughs> what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the power goes out at Derek's loft. So they didn't think about what might happen if someone just cut the power? Nope. It was mostly a good plan. Was it? For teenagers and Derek was. You're right. All right, let's get some water fight slow-mo going on here. Derek, like his eyes turning red with the giant window behind him. That's just Oh, that push-in shot. shot. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So in the script, before the power goes out, uh, we get the last of Twilight falls away as night descends outside the lost windows. Derek gives his phone a disconcerted look. Isaac asks, Cora? Derek replies, she was supposed to be back by now. Oh, brother. Kali enters barefoot as always. Now, do you think she does her own nails or? With what, like a bandsaw or something? <laughs> Holly says she's been wondering how to get Derek alone, given that he always surrounds himself with and hides behind teenagers. Then the twins come in behind her. Though I brought my teenagers, possibly, <laughs> who knows how old they are. Okay, this is weird. I don't know why Derek's eyes are CG in this scene, but Kali's are contacts. Because he's a series regular. I guess. Kali asks if Derek can beat her one-on-one. -on -one. Derek says he's going to rip her throat out with his teeth but not in a sexy way. You know, he says that to a lot of people. Styles would be so offended if he knew Derek was saying that to other people. You would be so offended. <laughs> he thought that threat was exclusive. <laughs> At the clinic, Styles explains that telluric currents are geomagnetic fields that flow through the earth and can even be affected by lunar phases. There's actually an extra small scene between the fight and the scene at the clinic. It happens at the Argent apartment with Chris stares at the map of Beacon Hills, no telling how long he's been there. But then, as if making a sudden decision, he stands and grabs his coat. Chris says, sweetheart, I'm head out. I'll be back in a bit, all right? He waits for a response. When nothing comes, he hurries out the door, never noticing Allison peering after him just down the corridor. Why does... Huh. I, I'm surprised that he says something to her, but then, like, she doesn't answer, and he's just like, oh, well. <laughs> as you were reading that, and you said, like, when there's no answer, he hurries out. It's like he's going after her instead of, honey, I'm going somewhere dangerous. No response. That's fine. You know, or, you know, so it's like, it, that feels a little bit weird. Well, didn't make it in there anyway, so. Yeah, there you go. I guess they just want to set up because 
for what we find out later of her like following him this is like a setup for that uh, i guess so yeah do y'all remember in the previous episode when argent had a heart to heart with allison and said hey honey you know we don't have to keep secrets anymore right that didn't last very long did it as he rushes I mean, out keeping secrets they're both liars when it comes i know to they're both <laughs> very bad at this it turns out harris tried to discourage danny from continuing research into the subject of tulliaric currents which leads styles to believe that danny might have stumbled on something relevant to the Duroc, and that would mean that harris wasn't just a sacrifice he knew something. Today's paper included a map of the Tulurk currents in Beacon Hills, and they aligned to some of the locations Chris marked on his map. Interesting fact, the shots of hands and pens doing circles and stuff, those aren't the actors. Those are pickups done at the end of the season, and those hands belong to crew members and, and office workers. They really should just circle back to locations. Yes. Hill House, Bank Vault, High School, they don't need to go anywhere else. Cora realizes Deaton is in the Bank Vault. Then, she gets a text from Boyd saying that the plan to protect Derek didn't work because the Alphas cut the power. I like how Boyd is just, like, apparently in the corner texting. <laughs> yeah. He's live tweeting the whole thing. It's great. Scott sends Cora and Styles to the loft while he goes to the vault. The Kalians pulling a joker. Make your choice. I really would have liked to have seen Jennifer getting taken by Kali and the twins. It would have been interesting. Scott runs to save Dean, but he gets stopped by a Mount Ash barrier. Oh, it's like a puppy coming up against an invisible fence. I want to know what the rules are for Mount Ash. Like, if you took a ball or something and rolled it through the ash, would that work? Yeah, like, can a supernatural creature use something else to break the line? It feels like that would be the case, because otherwise, does it just not let balls work or brooms or whatever? I yeah. never rolled this. <laughs> yeah, or leaf blowers, I don't know. Scott manages to push through the mountain ash barrier as Alpha Red bleeds into his irises, replacing the beta gold. Ah, the score here is so good. But like, Alphas also can't cross mountain ash barriers, right? Right. Okay, I just wanted to clarify. But true Alphas? Maybe? <laughs> okay, sure. Something interesting happens here in the script that doesn't happen in the actual scene. Uh, so Scott's trying to push through the barrier and it says, while flesh literally starts to tear from his cheeks, a red glow surges from his eyes. Deaton stares back at astonishment, looking into the eyes of an alpha, that the ash barrier proves too powerful. And then Scott's hurled back and it says, with the wounds already healing on his face, Scott reaches out, crawling forward, trying to lift himself up. So like, you know, we see the but it looks like a giant fan on Scott's face with him, like, you know, being pushed back. Like, he actually mm -hmm. starts tearing the flesh from his face, and I think that would have been really, really cool to see. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. We probably didn't have $45 to spend on. I know. I was thinking it was probably a budget thing. Yeah, yeah I'm sure it's a budget thing. But I think that, I mean, I get that it's hard. He's doing it, and it's a hard thing to do. But, like, the fact that it would have been physically painful, I mm -hmm. think, would have made it more powerful instead of because we don't really get painful for scott in that moment i mean he right. gets yeah. thrown back and that part's painful i guess but like it doesn't seem like the actual pushing against it is yeah physically hurting him i agree no that would have been really cool thankfully stolinski arrives at the bank vault and tells scott to let him give it a shot he takes out his service pistol and fires one shot taking out the rope that holds deaton suspended damn sheriff that's an amazing shot I love how he came in and stopped for a quick quip. Uh, there's always time for a quick quip. I don't know. I don't feel like that really fits with Sheriff. He's just me with binging some like CSI Miami or something like that before <laughs> he came in there. The Alphas threaten Jennifer. Kali orders the twins to grab Derek. 
They force his claws out and push Boyd, already weakened by the electricity, onto his claws. This scene is crushing. But why does this kill him? In season one, Derek got a fist through the chest from an alpha and survived. Also, why does Isaac stay with Jennifer after the twins let go of her? Like, why doesn't he just join the fight? I kind of get that. If you're in a hostage situation and the hostage is freed, but the bad guys are just across the room, I mean, you'll stay and protect them. But the door's wide open. He should be like, run! He's super hearing. He'd know if there were more threats around. That's accurate. But what I want to know is, why do they want Derek this badly? Uh, his name carries a lot of weight, I guess? I guess? No footage found. I missed this until I read it in the script. It says, Khalid raises Boyd off his feet and drops him down right onto Derek's claws held by Aiden Ethan. Eyes surging with a sudden brightness, Derek opens his mouth and gasps in shock as he subsumes Boyd's power. Oh. Interesting. Which yeah, you I mean, can that... actually see his eyes glow there when you, if yeah. you watch the scene. Yeah. I guess that does make sense given what Deucalion has been saying this whole time, but I was I was too focused on the fact that Boyd was dying to be thinking about like, did that prediction come true? Right. Same. So also in the script, there's something that didn't really come across in the scene. Ethan steps away, a look of regret on his face. Noticing the reaction, Aiden glares at him, pulling him back with Kali behind them. Yeah, that's not even in the episode, right? Yeah, I mean, we definitely don't get a moment for it. Yeah, you get a quick shot of their faces, but I don't think you have, like, Aiden pulling him aside. Yeah, interesting. Maybe, at least in the script, one of the the bad guys might be starting to regret actions and start turning towards the good side. I don't know. Two seconds later, regretting it. I know. (laughs) I I, I was going to say, it does make sense that he's the one that maybe feels some regret because... He he was there at Motel California when Scott and Styles helped him. Yeah. And then he helps kill one of their pack members. But I mean, you just did the thing, man. Yeah. Like feel some regret before you do the thing. Yeah. That's Ethan's are we the baddies moment? Yeah. <laughs> Kali tells Derek that he can either join the Alpha Pack or they'll return and kill everyone. With Boyd dying in front of him, Derek tries to say he's sorry. Boyd tells him that it's okay because the feeling of being a werewolf during the full moon was worth it. He also says there's a lunar eclipse coming and he's always wondered what that would feel like. In a flashback, we see Erica asking the same question while trapped in the pink vault. She hopes it'll make them stronger, she says, before she attacks Kali and we see her fall to the ground. In the present, Cora and Styles arrive. Cora runs to Boyd while Styles comforts Derek. In the script, it says, Derek finally lets go. Styles approaches, clearly not knowing what to do. So, like his father tried to comfort Scott, he simply puts a gentle hand on Derek's shoulder. Oh. Mm. Pull it at my heartstrings here. Chris and Allison visit Gerard at the nursing home and demand to be told a story of what he knows about the Kalian. Gerard, still coughing up black blood, says he's just surprised it took this long. What do the nursing home people think is happening to him? I know, right? Chris just pays them extra not to ask. I picture a nurse coming in and being like, what in the ever-loving f***? He's just an old man who loves his black licorice. Liquefied. Ugh. Put in a blender every morning. <laughs> Scott asked the sheriff how he knew to come to the bank vault. Stilinski says there were vials at the clinic with Celtic symbols on them, one of which was the bank's logo. So was that 
just a coincidence? Yes. He did not actually do any detective work. Yeah, because like, unless Deaton knew where he was going to be taken, which we assume he doesn't because he tells Scott to find him. He wouldn't necessarily tell him, though. I mean, come on. (laughs) That's accurate. I guess that's true. But like the only way it could not be a coincidence would be if Deaton knew well in advance of being kidnapped that he was going to be kidnapped and taken to the bank vault. And so he mixed in the bank logo with a bunch of Celtic symbols in hopes that if he were taken, then law enforcement could look through his vials, see the logo, realize it's the bank logo, and go there looking for him. This is really interesting because in the script, there's a scene where this actually happens. And it says, Stolinski comes into the clinic and sees on those vials the Celtic logo. And then right below that, is a bank deposit receipt with that logo on it. But then also below that is a post-it in Deaton's handwriting that just says, I'm at the bank vault. <laughs> wow, well, It's a stretch. Wow. Come on. Don't, uh, come on. That, that is yeah. a stretch. I Yeah, I really, like, when he said that, I was like, what? <laughs> or, like, or conversely, are they saying that the bank vault's logo is also a Celtic symbol and that's why the alphas chose it? Because they were like, we love Celtic symbol. Like there's- They don't, the Duroc does. It's not something the alphas are even into. Well, I don't know though, because technically the alpha pack symbol is a permutation of the Triskelion. That's true. Right? Yeah, I love that Celtic shit. All of which is to say that this makes no sense if you think about it for like 10 seconds. Yeah. Dean explains to Scott that every once in a while, to every generation, a beta beta can become an alpha without killing for it. It's called a true alpha. The beta becomes an alpha only on the strength of character, virtue, and force of will. He adds that the Kalian is after Scott, not Derek. The episode ends there with a head scratch. Someone should tell the rest of the alpha pack because- I know, right? Holly was yeah. just threatening Derek to join their pack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are seven episodes into this season and it's been Derek, Derek, Derek. And now all of a sudden it's, or Scott? Yeah, and it's, it's not even just Kali. Like there was the whole scene where Kali impaled Derek so that he would have to hear a long speech from Deucalion. Yeah. Exactly. What would yeah. be the purpose of that if they were after Scott, not Derek? Yeah, if they knew anything about Scott, they know he'd be more likely to join if Derek isn't part of the pack. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, you know, if they get Derek to join, maybe Scott will. I mean, no, that's... It's so nothing. worst market research ever. <laughs> Again, no one in Beacon Hills understands reverse psychology. So it's, <laughs> it's Yeah. All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Currents, and now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the exit stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the Alpha. It's rare. Something that doesn't happen within 100 years, but every once in a while, a beta can become an Alpha without having to steal or take that power. They call it a true alpha. It's one who rises purely on the strength of the character. By virtue, by sheer force of will. All right, Wolfies. Now we're going to cut over to our interview with Joe Janier, executive producer and director of Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. Joe, how did you get into producing? I kind of fell into it a little bit. 
and I wanted to do something in television and film. I didn't know what that was. I went for a kind of a communications major at school, uh, started taking some of the film classes and just said, I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I like watching television and I like movies. So I came out to California and uh, started doing script reading and started PAing at uh, Roger Corman's uh, film company at the time, you know, doing free PA work. And that led to a uh, job as an assistant to Mike Elliott, who is uh, my producing partner now, and led me down to work on a bunch of films down at the studio at Corman. Uh, and that was my film school. So two years there and 20, 30 films, it was like a ton of stuff. And in all aspects of uh, production and trying to do all various jobs. And I think I've done all the jobs, um, except for those fine-tuned like camera pulling, those focus pulling, mm -hmm. haven't done any of that just camera loading. But all those all those jobs gave me a little um, practical foundation for all departments. And uh, that led to producing eventually, UPMing, line producing, then producing. Very cool. Well, then uh, how did you end up in Beacon Hills? I ended up in Beacon Hills because MTV was looking for a producer to uh, do the Teen Wolf pilot, which was a presentation at the time. And I was recommended to the production executive from two different sources. So yeah, I went in to interview to produce the pilot and I met during that interview, Jeff Davis, and I met Russell Mulcahy, who I was super excited to meet during that interview because uh, I was a big fan of Highlander. So I was super excited to uh, meet him there. And um, and I, I think what I think what got me the job was, I think they were nervous about doing the show the script Jeff did on a budget. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, you can make anything on any budget as long as you're willing to compromise. And I think right there, <laughs> they're like, perfect. <laughs> do Atlanta. So I think that was it. But that's how I, that's how I first met everybody, uh, the Teen Wolf world. And we uh, kicked it off about 10 years ago, you know, 2010, I think. Yeah, 2010. What has it been like working with Jeff Davis? It's been really rewarding and it's been great. It's been a great friendship. He's super knowledgeable about the craft, about writing, about structure. You know, Will, obviously, you know, from being in the room and uh, even even doing this uh, past uh, story break on the movie. He's got a, a wealth of knowledge about the writing process and just his creative choices and his you know his rhythm for creation is actually been the biggest thing because he has he always says in the room you know he's got a he writes in a certain way that as they say the dialogue there's a flow and there's a pattern or a rhythm to it uh and it's much like when he kind of goes through the producer cuts in the episodes with the pacing you know you can see a rhythm in in the pacing in the editorial um, which is, you know, you know, his hand and and actually sound as well. The, you know, his his knowledge of themes and uh, scores from films is uh, quite vast, and it's actually played in great with a variety of our sequences in the episodes. So uh, it's been really rewarding and um, uh, wonderful to participate in uh, this venture and others with him. Fantastic! Everyone's only had positive things to say about Jeff. 
we've talked to you so we far. We should do the next podcast about the negative stuff then. <laughs> okay. the dark web. Yes. The dark web. Uh, I will not participate because I would like Jeff to hire me again. So uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're pretty secure, Joe. So uh, you, can, you can do whatever you want. How often did you go to the set? And do you have any fun stories from set? I uh, went to set. I'm on set every day in some capacity. Uh, it depends on if, you know, the room's still going at the time. You go to set in the morning, get everything kicked off, and then you kind of go spend time in the room. Uh, but there's always fires to put out in production. So it's, you know, a little back and forth once uh, cameras are officially rolling. But go to set pretty much every day. Overall, if you've been on set, you kind of get it because you're hanging a lot out for a very long time with a a specialized group of people. And so your inside jokes and your combined experience, what what's being told on set and the 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 ribbing you give to each other, it's uh it's just this weird onset community where you're kind of exhausted. You wait around a long time chatting about various things, then you quickly, quickly, quickly run around and do the work. Uh, but for some reason that's super bonding. It's uh, it's like manic in a way, and and then uh, really sedated. So I'm making it sound like a mental condition, which I guess it is. <laughs> in any respects, but it's uh, you know, there's always funny stuff on set, but uh, it's uh, rewarding all the time. It's all just good, you know. Even when it's bad, you know, we laugh at it now, but like you know, those cold, those first two seasons are freezing in Atlanta for some reason. You never like, think about it, like working nights in, you know, November, December, Atlanta are some of the coldest nights I've ever worked on a production. And <laughs> to the point where after the first night, like day, night one of, of filming, I think season one or season two, everybody was freezing. So then the next day was like Saturday and everybody ran into everybody at, at REI. Everybody <laughs> was buying like warm clothes. And then I remember the next week, I remember Russell had this uh, REI, this yellow kind of ribbed uh, outer jacket, but he was backed up too close to the propane heaters. And you could just hear the sizzling happen, not knowing really what's going on. But he's just like, he's just trying to stay so warm that his jacket's just like melting. <laughs> Classages melting across. Oh I think we went through a lot of Jack. Actually, that, that's the, that's only one. I know there's like three I remember. And he kind of walk around with a burnt sleeve for a little while. <laughs> Tim did that too. I think Tim's jacket burnt once. There's a lot of burnt REI jackets on set. I get it. The things we do to stay warm. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, you, you mentioned Atlanta. Um, the show moved from Atlanta to Los Angeles in season yeah. three. What was the biggest hurdle moving that production 3,000 miles? It's kind of like we had a bunch of sets up. We had to decide what we thought was going to play in season three. Mm -hmm. And the logistics of taking it down and folding everything in just the right way, transport, putting it on low boys or, or trailers, whichever we had from the shipping company. I think we had five or six trailers uh, go out there to um, 8,400. Yeah, that was my first job uh, when, yeah, I, yeah, when, when I was officially there. hired as that's a full-time right. employee was to sit in a parking lot and watch people unload trailers for like right. a week. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, but I remember, and we unloaded them and just getting it all situated. So you didn't have, you didn't have anything left in Atlanta and everything and moved over to LA. That was the biggest hurdle. I think 
other than that, it was, uh, it was really a good experience and, um, season three really went really well for us. So it was a good, uh, good experience overall. Who in the Teen Wolf cast or crew would make the best alpha? Jeff Davis would make the best alpha. Make sure you send that clip to him right now. Yes, I will. Cast wise, and you know Tyler Posey, he's he's, he's got like uh, he's got the charisma, the strength, and the heart. And Tyler Hecklin as well is a great is a great alpha. He's uh, you know he came on board. He's a producer on this on the movie. It's weird to say, but like all the all the 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 OG cast were. I keep on calling them kids. They're not kids anymore. And like, are the, are the kids ready to start up the next season? They're not kids. They're like, you know, grown-ass adult. <laughs> they all have this this new strength, and it's kind of like weird for me sometimes to be interacting with them when they're when they're making sense and not doing kind of stupid kid stuff that maybe they did <laughs> in the past a little bit. <laughs> So were you a fan of the original Teen Wolf movie? Yeah, I was. I was a fan of that movie. And uh, I think that movie and the the line that I keep remembering from that movie is from the Styles character when Michael J. Fox came up and he said something like, "Uh, have you heard of any uh, like uh, disease or cold or anything going around the school? And Styles like, why are you looking to catch something? (laughs) <laughs> and for some reason that was just so absurd and funny that um i i always remember that line for some reason and surfing on the van oh yeah van surfing on the van oh, were yeah. you surprised uh how different the television adaptation was whenever you came onto the project no because they had started doing what was vampire diaries right before us i think a year before yeah. us maybe they started doing kind of that darker fare. And so I know ours would be a little grittier, a little darker. And I love that we dove into a lot of the horror, you know, and, and having, you know, Russell, especially on that was great. So I didn't, I wasn't surprised. You know, we don't have, I wouldn't say we're very tongue in cheek that often. Maybe there are a couple instances that keep us a little grounded from just being, what would you, you know, American Horror Story or something that dark and kind of uh, weird. But um, I thought we found a really really great tone for it you know supernatural the horror comedy and family stuff family family drama the romance uh, i think we really kind of nailed nailed all the all those uh, aspects when uh we started presenting so uh really proud of it yeah and uh, i think you find an, a nice niche Absolutely. Definitely different from the movie, but I, I, you know, I love the movie. Right. (laughs) Joe, you directed The Maid of Jevedon. What was it like taking Teen Wolf back to the 18th century? It was like increasing the budget 200% just for that one episode. That's what it was like. Uh, It's great that you have uh, such a good relationship with the exec producer. And for that one episode, was able to squeeze more money out of the budget, unlike the other 99. In his genius... He said we should spend on this episode. I don't know how he thought through that so quickly, but he really wanted to spend on this episode. It was great. <laughs> One of the you know fringe benefits. You know, I have an affinity towards historical stuff. I, I kind of gravitate towards well those episodes. Um, you know. I, did the other one with the world war ii stuff and i love that stuff i love the flashback stuff and uh doing you know 18th century the 18th century i i knew of that story the made of jevanon and there's um the movie that kind of hit on it we referenced a lot brother brother the wolf yeah. yeah that was that was great so it was great i was super excited to do it obviously we had a lot of you know we had to make it 
know, we had to create French taverns and houses and basements and stuff. And our, our production designer, Tom, was great at, uh, Tom Hallbauer was great at conceptualizing almost like a modular tavern that turned into a, I don't know, an inn, a basement, a uh, 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 kind of a recluse's uh, shack in the woods. Really great uh, use of production design there. So it, it was fun. It was uh, it was super exciting. Loved all the wardrobe period piece stuff, the weaponry, uh, the, the climate, the hunting for the wolf in the snowy Griffith Park uh, location, <laughs> uh, torches, all, all that kind of stuff. I really, I really loved it. It was great. Super, super uh, fortunate for me. And I was very happy that I had the opportunity to do that. Very generous of uh, Jeff uh, MTV for allowing me to do that. Uh, it's a great episode. He, oh, did, he did wonderfully. It is. Such yeah. a good one. I appreciate that. Thank you. So we've talked a bit about the budget, and that is a topic that has come up with most of the people that we've talked to. So from your perspective, what was it like trying to keep Teen Wolf on budget? Was MTV, was that a kind of basic cable contract kind of thing? It was, uh, you know, it wasn't the best of budgets. It, I felt we knew what worked for us. We applied the money to what worked. We, we loved our special effects. We loved our makeup effects. You know, the camera and cinematography was the result of the talent, you know, Dave Daniel, Rich Paisley, you know, it, it was like they they really used their skill to create the images and the looks that maybe you haven't seen on, did not see on TV prior to that. And uh, that wasn't fancy rigs or anything like that. That was just really thinking, how does this story affect the creative cinematography here how does the lighting work how does the production design weigh into that you know all the departments were kind of firing on uh, on firing all cylinders during a lot of those seasons and that artistry when it comes together you know I, I love it I, I love it when it works and so the budget you know you have to have something there and you have to have some kind of you know a little generosity from the studio there and and they supplied um, it was always tight and we were always, you know, arguing our, what our passions were for, which, which set, which actor, which uh, scene, uh, what should we spend money on? And, and we all decided it was episode 518, Made of Jevedon. So I think we made <laughs> all those minds coming together. No, but I, I you know, really kudos, kudos to the, uh, the cast and the crew for, for that, because without that, that budget would have hurt another show you know, without trying to work past the limitations of, of uh, fiscal limitations, um, you know, we want to, we, that's what they did. And uh, that's why uh, the show became successful and a good looking show at that. I was actually looking at a clip from the World War II um, episodes and I was like, oh my God, we have tanks and like <laughs> all these German soldiers and then the ghost ride, like all these horses. All these like vintage guns. And I was like, damn, that looks great. And I have to say, you know, part of it, part of it is just like when you like the characters and you like what you're watching, everything around them is enhanced. You know, everything becomes better, you know, like the development of those characters. And, you know, it was what Jeff was creating on, on page. You want to be watching it and 
you like what you see. And so everything around it gets, gets that extra little glow, you know, that little cast off glow. So everything gets enhanced in that way. Embarrassment of riches. So you've talked a, a little bit about it, but um, MTV wasn't a network that was known for their scripted programming. What was it like working with them? All the folks at MTV were, you know, sometimes you, you, you've heard stories, not that I've ever encountered any of the studio executives that I've worked with who have been less than, stellar and totally on top of their game but at mtv all of those folks were professionals and really great to work with and super supportive you know once we got it up and running and we showed them what we were doing it was really a nice little hands-off in many respects there wasn't like bearing down on what we were spending on visual effects or costumes or anything like that we're really a you know success breeds a little bit of uh, autonomy but they were all they were all very helpful and very supportive of the show you know and a lot of their marketing and a lot of their kind of promo stuff and obviously when social media wasn't young at that time but they really got it going in this on the social media front even today you know and i know we're dipping our toe back into it for the movie promotion so it's uh, kind of fun to be having those discussions again but it was great working with mtv and, and obviously growing up uh when i did with mtv you know rising and becoming you know what it is today it's nice to be associated with that uh that network and that channel so i'm glad to be working with the folks again that's fantastic yeah they're gonna hear this right i want to yeah. sure send this to them just yes. that clip yes yeah directly yeah to their inboxes do you have a favorite character from teen wolf i don't you know i you know that that the original group the the OG group, they're kind of my favorite characters because they, and when I say that, I, I mean, you know, when, when those episodes when we're talking about having anchors and uh, having, um, you know, your, your family, your pack, uh, the pack, that's my favorite, my favorite character is the Team Wolf pack that, um, you know, supported each other, like fought with each other, loved each other. But, uh, all of them gelling like they did was, uh, that's what I like the best. And it's just a great, it's a great kind of, um, lesson to uh the audience you know yeah everybody everybody needs that so can you explain to fans what a working day was like for you when the an episode was filming well it depends on if we were still in the writer's room at the time or not in the beginning you get to work a half hour before call so you pick up all the problems that are going to befall the day and i don't know if that's the right terminology but uh you figure out every all the fires that are happening and you try to solve them before call time and then you get you watch the rehearsal and they go through their blocking and, and what have you. The cast goes off to get their makeup hair done. Uh, that's when you go get breakfast. And then you quickly <laughs> eat your breakfast burrito and come back. And if you timed it all right, all the cast is out of hair and makeup and they're they're back ready to film the first scene. And you watch the first scene. And then then you go to the writer's room for a few hours and then you kind of bebop as as you get your texts and uh, calls for whatever the problem was. And you kind of do that for the next 10 to 12 hours. And then at the end of the day, you usually walk through with uh, the director um, to figure out what the next morning is going to look like. So you can kind of hit it hard. Now, I always like to know what the first shot is of the next day. And I love it when directors can tell me that like, okay, this is your scene, you're in the bedroom, what's going to be your first angle, your first shot. Because with everybody knowing that, it's like cameras lining up before you even have to go through, wait for somebody to finish their coffee to come to set to do the blocking, anything like that. So it's a lot of that, but mostly 
it's putting out fires. It's whatever the production issue lost a location permit or this person doesn't have doubles on the clothing or this we're, we're out of uh, we're out of claws on uh, Peter Hale or something like that. You know, these, these things pop up and uh, um, you just go through problem solving, you know? God, that sounds stressful. <laughs> it's actually, you know, if you like puzzles, it's pretty cool. And if you remember, we're not curing cancer or anything really super noble uh, like that. We are uh, kind of warming hearts as we show our show. If you think about it like that, you can you you take a pause and you don't get too stressed out. You're kind of interested to see uh, what comes your way. I've grown in my experience where I'm you know, when uh, some employees coming up and you know they're in a huff and you know something went wrong and you're kind of thinking to yourself, I can't wait to see what this is. That person's <laughs> really upset and they're coming right for me. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's uh, you just w- wonder what that puzzle is going to be and how you can solve it. And then the, the best part is if you think something totally outside of the box, uh, that works. And that's, that's fun. And then you feel like a uh, uh, successful day. Great approach to it. Yeah, that's it's a very healthy approach, Joe. That's, that's fantastic. I never would have. That's not what my doctor says. No. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you're making entertainment. You're, you know, you're making a TV show. It's it's great. Or a movie. It's, it's you know, it's great. So y'all just wrapped uh, the first week on the Teen Wolf movie. How's it going? It's going really well and it's like we got so many of the you know you know yourself included all the cast and crew back and it's good to see the uh, old faces coming together and it's kind of like it just didn't stop and everybody picks up everybody knows everybody else's idiosyncrasies or what their little things are and um we do our zing and zagging and it's uh everybody fell into step again. It's, it's literally like the five years um, or whatever it was kind of wasn't even there. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to see it happen and coalesce again. And it's, you know, we're kind of shooting for the stars. We want like magic to happen again and lightning to hit twice. And uh, I think, I think it is, I, you know, great to see everybody really great. And I, you know, day one, I was, we were shooting this fight scene in the locker room and Tyler Posey came in. We were shooting with Tyler Hecklin and uh, Crystal Reed and Tyler Posey came in because he had the next scene up and he saw, he saw Hecklin and they got the, they just, they hugged so hard and I, I took a photo of it and I was like, oh, I love it. And, you know, it's like um, real like friendship and camaraderie on set and love, you know, and you love all these folks. So it's uh, it's very cool. It's very cool. And heartwarming. It's it could all go to crap as soon as we do our first night in the woods. <laughs> Everybody's like, where the hell's the hot coffee? Where's my, my, where's my warm trailer? sure that could happen but for right now it's bliss fans were wanting for the longest time either a season seven or spinoff or a movie how did the film uh come to fruition we have a lot of cast and coordinating all of those folks at one time period is super difficult uh but you know hats off to viacom to paramount plus for you know wanting to hit go on it and you know pressing the metal down on the car really 
really hard to try to like, okay, this is serious. Let's get together. No, we're not just talking about, let's get it. To, come on, come on. Go on. What, are, what are the things? What's the timeline? And really wanting to make this work. Cause obviously there's a lot of reboots happening out there. We've, we've seen them, seen them all. Some, some are, we've waited a long time for some happen really a little too fast, but I think this is actually a sweet spot for Teen Wolf, just the enough longing and, you know, uh, enough already give us a reboot so i think it's kind of a sweet spot and our, our kids are at their kids our, <laughs> our, our cast are at a right age where we want to see them again and they still have like you know the kind of the juice and the flavor for for the show that they want to come back and um make it happen again so nice. uh you know paramount plus put it together and uh we're happy to be here and happy to wrangle everything we need everything we need for the movie everyone's very excited if you could be any teen wolf creature what would you be probably a kitsune actually i really loved that season of japanese mythology and all kind of the spirit uh, spirit creatures a lot of worked really well i love sword play i love uh you know dueling and fighting with swords and all that kind of th- stuff i love the discipline of it so i think that would be super cool i think it'd be super cool Definitely. You know. I mean, I don't want to be yeah. a cannibal. <laughs> don't want to be a were lizard. Not today. Not today. <laughs> we talked about you directing. You also wrote two episodes of Teen Wolf. How did that come about? Again, generosity of Jeff. And uh, he thought I was at a point where I could take a crack at a script. And uh, it, it worked out great. It was a great experience. You know, I've, I'm, I'm usually in the room, in the in the writer's room. Um mostly to say no we can't do that we'll never afford that uh but uh to a point where (laughs) you know what probably happened i probably said to him well let's do this and then this and then this and he goes well why don't you just write that and they're like okay (laughs) that's what probably happened he probably got sick of me suggesting something but uh, no, he was, it was great. And he's like, you know, been a great mentor in, in that capacity. And it's, um, it's always uh, fun to engage new, you know, new mus- muscles, creative muscles, if you will. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have a favorite episode or season of the show? Favorite season would be season three. Like I thought we hit our stride and really everything was pumping in that season, you know, visually actor wise everything was really coming together and uh uh i really enjoy that season i i I think all of our strengths were on display you know how you kind of gear up and you get going get going get going and i think we just you know hit our stride in that season favorite episode (laughs) yeah (laughs) 518 those are the best. No, (laughs) i love i love all the historical flashback stuff um 518 it was just a big favorite of mine not not because i directed it at all i don't know i was i was just super excited to tell that story and uh melded into our teen wolf uh world they definitely broaden the horizons of the show you know yeah. yeah like every season the show just gets bigger and bigger which i love but then you take something like that and you're just like you just visualizing the history with the artists that we've talked about yeah you know yep. it's like they're always mentioning the code and where it came from and and the history and then it's like well here it is guys here's yeah what, here's how I it mean, works I, I love that with the argents and uh you know the hails we should have gone back more on the hails too because they had a, like a long history as well and uh 
It's uh, that stuff and how those things inform how we are now and how we act with our family and dynamics and everything. You know, it's always starts from somewhere. And that's always nice to examine in, in stories, especially serialized TV shows where you really have some time to go back and check it all out and see, oh, yeah, that's why this is happening now. That's always, and for the fans, I, I'm sure they, they loved seeing that kind of thought process uh, play out across across you know the episodes and the seasons themselves well other than the teen wolf movie are there any other upcoming projects you can tell us about yes we're you know working with jeff on eon flux that's the uh anime series from the from mtv from the 90s that's Mm -hmm. been super exciting process for us i know there was a movie in i think 2005 this will be a live action series um that has been great that's you know new world building and uh great characters and just you know you're always kind of how would they handle things now in this future that we're developing? And uh, he's, he's super, Jeff's super excited about that. It's visually, it's going to be super cool. And I think we, we start, we already did uh, some scouting for that. And um, obviously we've broken a lot of the scripts already. And Jeff wrote the pilot for that. And I believe we'll start filming that in January nice. of uh, next year. Very um, cool. It's exciting. Yeah, that, that should be should be super cool. We're, we are also doing a series called Wolfpack, uh, which is not related to Teen Wolf, even though it has wolf in the title, but it's a different IP. And that's a different uh, different take on this mythology. It'll be different landscape and uh, different stories. And uh, we're, I'm, you know, the, the biggest difficulty with it is we did that on Teen Wolf. We're not going to do that here. This is how we're going to do it here and how we're playing with that mythology. That's exciting. It's exciting. Love it. And it's a lot of it is just character dynamics. You know, I know you have the, this layer of supernatural spreading throughout, but it's, it's character dynamics and how these uh, characters uh, deal with each other. I love it. It's fun. Character first. Yeah. Very excited. Very excited for, for both those shows. Yes. And the movie. And the movie. And the movie, the movie is, yeah, we, uh, you know, we're here in Atlanta. We got the Atlanta portion going to post in the summer and do a bunch of visual effects and uh, should be out in, in the fall. Nice. Wow. Wow. Be nice to visit this world again and hang out with these kids again. So I hope it spawns more, more, uh, more shows. Absolutely. I'm sure it will. I mean, there's so many, the universe is so big. There's so much you can do and, and all that. And plus people love it. I mean, give people more of the thing they love, you know, so it's good. Agreed. Agreed. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule producing a hit movie and hit TV shows <laughs> that are upcoming. Thank you for talking to us about yes. uh, Teen Wolf. and oh, great. Yeah, and, uh, we all so appreciate you. you know, I appreciate you uh, listening to the podcast. I appreciate you guys. Uh, uh, keeping Teen Wolf out there and enjoying it again and again. I, I envious too. I'm like, oh, they got to rewatch blah blah blah, and I was like, oh, I remember <laughs> that episode. And you guys are kind of recounting stuff, and obviously you're bringing on, you know, a bunch of uh, friends that I, uh, I know and love. So it's always good to hear them uh, chat about it. Um, so it's cool. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Keep doing it, and uh, we will chat again after the movie. I'm sure. Yes, no, that'd be that'd Sounds be good, totally awesome. We had a great time talking with Joe, but now it's back to spoilers. Okay, why did Jennifer poison Danny with mistletoe? 
Like, if the point was just to kill him because he knew too much, why not just cut his throat or something? Not that I want that to happen to National Treasure Danny Mihailani, but strategy-wise. It's poetic, question mark, question mark? How did she even do it? That's what I want to know. I mean, magic, I guess, right? It would have to be magic. She magic them right into his stomach. But yeah, again, that makes no sense. She could have, like... Did she just want to shut him up for a bit? Was he going around telling everyone about his amazing paper? Was he submitting it to journals? Like, <laughs> he's like, just stop talking about this collapsed lung. <laughs> Honestly, it probably would have been smartest not to do anything. I mean, no one's reading Danny's papers but Harris. He's a high school student. And Harris is already A, in on it, and B, dead. Which she knows because she did the dead. <laughs> the fact that he, the fact that Danny had time to go to the hospital shows that it's not a very good murder you'd think someone this experienced at murder would be better at murder ah, she doesn't always murder good though and apparently jennifer's not that good at tracking who's researching currents since chris was working on that too i guess she really was like worried about danny in particular because of him being with ethan like maybe she was like worried about him telling ethan his kind of boyfriend about his boring ass paper because someone you're having sex with is the only person who'd want to hear about that and even then they just kind of fake nod along yeah sure Kurtz, babe that's so interesting that's what we saw in the previous episode when he kicked the books off the bed he was like oh let me tell you about this paper kick books no make out with me (laughs) (laughs) though decalion already knows about the currents yeah yeah yeah. I don't really know how this makes any sense. But I do think it's funny, Will, if there's like a, a clip in that scene with Danny and Ethan that was removed where Ethan is like, Danny, talk dirty to me. And Danny's <laughs> like, have you ever heard of telluric currents? And Ethan's like, I changed my mind. Let's <laughs> just skip straight to the good stuff. Shh, baby, shh, don't speak. <laughs> Uh, that would be great. Continuing my series of why is this happening questions, why didn't Deaton tell the others, or why didn't Deaton tell the other alphas even, that Deucalion killed Ennis? I don't think he had to tell them anything. The body had to have still been there, because that would have just raised even more questions if Kali and whoever else was there we're like, you know, she's out there screaming to the heavens and tearing out her hair and all this stuff. And then comes back in and, and it's just gone. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what happened. He's just gone, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Do alphas yeah. do that when you die? You just disappear? Yeah, Are you it's like, like vampires on Buffy when they, get, <laughs> when they get staked, they just burst into dust. Exactly. Like, oh, see this dust? This is Ennis. You'll never know exactly how it happened. Yeah. So it, it that I, I, ever since that moment, when when Deucalion crushes Ennis's face, it's just like, how are you going to explain this away? Because it's not like he just succumbed to his wounds. There are now new wounds. Yeah. You know, he had a face and now he doesn't, you know? And it's just <laughs> like, uh, this doesn't make sense. And for Ethan or whichever one was like, Derek killed one of ours and now we're going to kill one of yours. It's like, that. you can't possibly think that, bro. And if you do think that, then you're really dumb, like really dumb, you know? So it's just like, it, it doesn't really make any sense that that happened. I know they didn't do it because yeah, then it would open up a whole can of worms, but I would have really liked to have seen like what the alpha pack does to like honor their dead. Like, do they have like mm. certain rituals or something where they just like, eh, we don't really care. Throw the body off a bridge and call it a day. Like, cause we know that Derek 
took time with Laura to Mm -hmm. bury her and I really also kind of want to know what he did with Erica because he recovered her body so like did he also bury her out on the hill property like that's my headcanon yeah I think that's great I thought you were gonna say because Peter ends up in the hail house under it and it's like how how did that happen and I think Calissa was it was one of you two smart people who said somebody put him there you know and it's like I think one of you had had posited that maybe it was Derek that even though he was even though Peter was the bad guy Hales get buried on Hale Lane type of thing Mm -hmm. that's just the way it is and I I think that would have been fantastic to know or even better to see you know burying Erica you know and just seeing that type of ritual and then even with the the alpha pack seeing that would have been interesting because i mean with kali's reaction there had to have been more so because it wouldn't be like no god why have you forsaken to me so subway 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 we go into subway (laughs) you know (laughs) it's it's the fast food restaurant of mourning exactly exactly i'm gonna mourn over this hinge cut sandwich but uh yeah so it would have been cool to see it would have been it would have been cool to see. So I I mean I have to assume based on their conclusion that Derek killed Ennis that they don't look at the body. Yeah, I think that's the only the only way for anyone to believe that is Jacalian and Deaton or just Deaton did something with the body. He just tossed it into a ravine or something. And and they're like, oh yeah, he died and it was gross and icky. So we got rid of the body so you wouldn't have to see it. We spared you. Yeah, it it really, like, the more you think about it, the more it's like, how could that possibly be? Yeah. And yeah, like, Dean has no reason to not tell Scott about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dean has no reason to ever really do any of the things that he doesn't do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit weird. It's, it's, I love Teen Wolf, guys. I love Teen Wolf with all of my wolfy heart. But we are pretty bad at characters withholding information just for drama. And it's Mm -hmm. probably my worst pet peeve when it comes to storytelling of all time. (laughs) You know, like there's literally no reason for for Deaton to not have done whatever he did and then be like, oh, so I'm going to Subway to pick up some sandwiches. But he actually (laughs) goes and talks to Scott and is like, hey, Deucalion totally crushed Ennis's face and he blamed it on you. So heads up, here is your meatball sub. I will see you tomorrow. (laughs) so we're not sponsored by subway in case you couldn't tell based on the content of this conversation <laughs> we are not we are not so but yeah it, it just it just doesn't it doesn't it's just not good it's it's not good writing to have characters not talk to each other about things that are clearly very important yeah. so it's it's just it's just not it just doesn't work it's just not good i mean it reminds me of like where last season left off with uh, Morel asking Dean, like, are you going to warn him about what's coming? Yeah. Like, nah. <laughs> I want to be a pleasant surprise. <laughs> or not so pleasant. Yeah. I think it's... It'll be a surprise is what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. they act like it's about protecting. And I feel like that's so often the case is they act like characters are protecting each other by not telling them things. And I feel like that can only work for some situations of like, with, you know, Scott not wanting to tell Allison right away that her mother had tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Still definitely, you know, should have told her sooner than he did, but I understand yeah. that was something that was going to really hurt her mm-hmm. and he didn't want to just 
come out and tell her that. Yeah. It was really difficult for him to do, but yeah. there's no reason he couldn't be like, your grandpa that you barely know is psycho. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 When yeah. she specifically goes out of her way to be like, he, like, he gets me a birthday card. That, that's the right. entirety of our relationship. Yeah. Like, you know, it, that is m- much stranger. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting, and I know that I am the perennial Derek apologist, comma, Esquire, but (laughs) I think it is interesting that, like, there's this thread in the first season of, like, Derek withholding information from Scott, not all information, but some of it, and Scott calls him out on it and is like, why didn't you tell me this? And Derek's like, I'm trying to protect you by not telling you about things that I think you will try to find out more about which will only end poorly for you. And Scott is basically like, that's garbage and you're garbage. But then proceeds to do the exact same thing for like seasons. It's just not good storytelling. It's just cheap. It's it's a cheap way to get drama. It's like, we need tension between characters. And it's like, well, I'm just not going to have character A tell character B important information so that they can fight about it later. And it's like, no, 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 no. Have character A tell character B and character B doesn't believe it or yeah. thinks it doesn't matter. Or I mean, wouldn't angry. it have been so good if Scott had told Allison, maybe not immediately, like like Calissa said, I'm okay with him not telling her immediately after her mother yeah. died. Because yeah. I could understand that thought process. But then after like months have passed, it's yeah, like, like three whole months. Seriously, come on. Go by. But wouldn't it have been so much more interesting if Scott told Allison what was happening and Allison's like, I don't believe you yeah i mean that like, how been... do you know you were drugged out of your mind or whatever you know so yeah. yeah or like uh i think you're just making excuses for Derek, or you know what what would you expect a protective parent to do when she realizes that her kid is still hanging around a monster and then scott would realize that on some level allison kind of still thinks of him that way yeah. or whatever it is like there's some version of that fight between them that isn't entirely predicated on just not telling the other person at all. Yeah, the, when, when you have characters don't tell each other information, you I think you get one kind of drama. And it's, mm-hmm. why didn't you tell me? That's what you get out of it. Yeah. And, but when you have characters tell each other information, you have a plethora of versions of drama because people can react in a plethora of ways, you know? Right. And it's like, and it's all drama, you know? So you can have all of it. You can have your cake and eat it too. You know, like this is literally when you can do that. And it's just, it's very frustrating, you know, that that when that happens, because I love our show so much, but I mean, up until the very end, we have characters still not telling each other important characters who have been through amazing and horrifying adventures together, Mm -hmm. who have not told each other things that led to said amazing and horrifying adventures, and they still don't talk to each other. And it's just frustrating because like even even like it kind of goes with like even in season five, I think at some point someone says like, oh, this thing is happening. Someone's like, what? No, that can't be right. And it's like, dude, you have seen so many <laughs> things. How I, I'm so surprised that anyone I, I would totally buy anyone being like, guys, there's been a murder. It was a Bigfoot. And they're like, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm, yep. OK, I believe you because yes. of previous adventures we've had. With monsters. I buy this 100%. They're like, how dare you go scully on me in this moment? You're going <laughs> to scully me five seasons into this relationship. How dare you? Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it sucks. But there we go. So 
something major happened in this episode that introduces an aspect of the mythology that has repercussions for seasons to come. That is Scott as true alpha. Yeah. So what do we think about this turn of events? I think the things that y'all have said previously that I now hold dear, which is it came too soon. It It, it came too soon. It did not feel fully earned. It just, it's, I think the concept is totally cool and totally interesting. Um, It's a new spin on werewolf myth and lore, you know, the the Teen Wolf version of it. Totally awesome. But I mean, this should have been a season six thing, Mm -hmm. you know, because like what Decalion, like mentions Scott and the things he will do. And it's like based on what, you know, it's just. I I feel like they just don't, remember like we've only only had scott scott's been a werewolf for like six months tops yeah and yeah i know like it feels like more time has passed because we're in season three it feels like more time has passed and the characters going up but in actuality it's been six months tops probably and it just yeah it doesn't feel earned yeah yeah i mean it, it was Actually, like I guess, I guess it would have been a full year I guess it's been a year since he became a werewolf, but still, that's not a lot of time in the grand scheme of things. It's been a full year? Well, because he got turned, like, the start, like, the day before school started, and now um, there was summer break and school started again, Oh, so. right, right, all right, yep, sorry, so the, the Teen Wolf timeline, <laughs> right. I, I struggle. I don't think it was the beginning of the school year, I think it was just the beginning of lacrosse season. I feel like one of the unintended side effects is that having watched the show, when I rewatched season one, I'm like, Scott, honey, what are you doing? Because when you have this idea that he's like transcended the laws of super nature, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you yeah. will, that they're saying he's like a once in a generation teenager. So then you look at his decisions and it's like, well, with that as the metric, you're falling well short, you know? Yeah. It, if anything, causes you to look at his earlier actions more critically because now they're acting like he's, yeah, once-in-a-generation hero. And it's like, I mean, was he a once-in-a-generation hero like a couple months ago when literally his greatest fear was his girlfriend cheating on him? Yeah. Greatest fear. I I understand it being a fear, but apparently he was more afraid of her cheating on him than her getting murdered by a supernatural monster. Yeah. Like that doesn't feel like once in a generation stuff. And I don't have a problem with Scott being a true alpha. I just feel like it would be so much more meaningful if it actually felt like the culmination of a steady ascent yeah. to that point. Because it kind of plateaus your character arc <laughs> halfway through the series you know so not it, even it, i mean we're, you're right you're we're not, not even, even we're not even halfway in. yeah so it's it's yeah it, you're right it needs to be an ascent this needs to be a culmination and it's not so i think it's an interesting idea it just came so early yeah it, it is definitely interesting but it needs to be earned and i don't think it has to be super rare i mean obviously it's not like extremely common but the whole like once every hundred years and stuff like I was joking, you know, yeah. every generation of Slayer is born. Like, it just feels too chosen one for me. Yeah, it is. It's it is. It's kind of our version of that trope. That trope ain't good to begin with. And I feel like, especially with Deucalion making the comments about it. Yeah, the prophecy sort of thing. Yeah, it feels like it's prophesied. And it would yeah. be, I, I feel like it's more interesting when it's like, no one could have foreseen that this was going to happen. It just happened because... Scott made it happen. Mm-hmm. But when you 
add in the element of other characters that haven't even been around for the last six months or to a year of events being like i can tell by looking at that boy that he's going to be the true alpha yeah, yeah. what exactly like rumors were getting around about him like what that he'd done in the first like couple seasons was like this kid super this duper the hero yeah the the one that like ran away from the alpha after the alpha put its fist through like the one other werewolf that scott knew to learn from are we talking about the one that like kissed his best friend's crush of many years and then lied to him about it because apparently his version of full moon craziness was just being the class bitch (laughs) and i mean i don't fault like i understand he was a 16 year old still probably is i don't know if he's had a birthday he never has birthdays who can say i mean he's a teenager so i understand that but you can't have it both ways of like he's a teenager who acts like a teenager but then also he's like super special chosen one exactly sheer yeah good character that's bringing him along because yeah teenagers and that's not saying he's not a good person because of those mistakes he made but he needed to grow and he still needs more growing I feel like Mm -hmm. before he gets to this status right yeah I mean like I said I feel like it unfortunately has the side effect of like instead of looking at his mistakes in the first season and contextualizing them correctly and being like this is a 16 year old child he knows not what he does you know (sighs) um because of knowing that this is what's coming you're instead looking at it through the lens of no this isn't just a 16 year old this is a once in a century 16 year old so yeah you're, you're going to look at those actions through a more critical lens and that feels like maybe the opposite of what they would want you to do but it's like well, that's what happens when you say that he's the super special chosen one who's a once in a generation person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I feel like that's why a lot of people struggled with some of the like middle Harry Potter books because he became too teenager like with like his teenager problems and his whining and everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I certainly struggled with that. <laughs> but at least in Harry Potter, it's like that was greatness thrust upon him. Right. Yeah. Whereas this was like achieving greatness. Mm-hmm. So at least with Harry Potter, you're like, sucks to be the wizarding world because this is the hero you're stuck with, folks. <laughs> yeah. You know, like when he when he's talking about like, oh, Cho Chang, it's like her boyfriend just got murdered. Would you like calm down for two seconds? Yeah. Uh, but I Maybe digress because I have a vampire who then turned into a bat. Oh, because Twilight. <laughs> I was joking. I said, I hear he really just became a vampire who then turned into a bat. Oh, got it. Yes. It, nice. it took me a second. <laughs> But yeah, like with Harry Potter, it's like, okay, I struggle a little bit with it because I'm reading like 200 pages of this. But at least in that case, it is like, he's not the chosen one because he's so pure of heart mm-hmm. that he became the chosen one. He's the chosen one because like of what happened to him. Yeah, like he has no agency. It's just like, you're a baby. <laughs> something yeah. you, you Something you had no control over. Your mom loved you so much. It created magic that made you impervious to Voldemort and you didn't do anything but it made you a god and all these people's eyes and you're just like I'm just a kid I I I have a crush I like girls I like Quidditch like yeah yeah whereas when you make it particularly about the utter purity of the person's soul and like you know then it's like well through that lens it's a lot less flattering isn't it to be like this is our once in a generation hero like no he's an average 16 year old who makes average 16 year old mistakes who i think on a a broader trajectory could then achieve greatness 
by conquering those flaws. But part of the issue is that with with Teen Wolf, when a character makes a mistake, they probably won't have to address it. (laughs) Yeah. You know? And, like, it would work a lot better if it was, like, Scott makes mistakes, and then he has to own up to that shit. And not just, like, admit in one season that it happened, but become proactive and make amends and have it be part of an ongoing journey of self-improvement you know and instead it's kind of like what scott did what oh well that's fine we'll never talk about it again yeah it's unfortunate but all that being said i do really like the scenes with core and lydia together i like the snark i like the sass they're really good together tension it's it is i was gonna say palpable it's not palpable but i like it it is there it's fun and interesting and and the joke of uh <laughs> have you tried girls you know and I, I, i'm just like that should have been on they should have just said that in the doesn't show. it fit so perfectly it it she says the thing about it, it's perfect it, it's it's perfect you know and because 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 oh my god because you could totally you could totally say because it's at the beginning of this season right when she has the guy over when lydia mm-hmm. has the guy over yeah because yeah. it's like you know then core could just be like you should try girls and like you just change it and like lydia eyes her leather jacket she goes i do like leather jackets you know and all that and then ah, bam done that would know, be so, so fun yeah that would have been good that would have been good but that's a fun ship i do enjoy that ship very much or even like the opposite where like lydia's lydia fires back yeah i have not so great taste in guys, but I have fantastic taste in girls. And Cora's like, uh, what? Because I love, I love that like expectation reversal where this character that's like really aggressive and assertive, like just blushes. Yeah, yeah. no, that would have been totally awesome. <laughs> would have been totally great. It's a good ship. And I shall sail it into the sunset. I'll tell you all that. I'll be right there with you. <laughs> that concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTPH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 8, Visionary. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.